We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Feel like Kobe in a fourth quarter. This is the Dane Moore NBA podcast brought to you by Blue Wire Podcasts. And I wanted to slide a show in here in the lead up to training camp, which is somehow less than two weeks away. It's just going to be me on today's show. And there's three things I want to hit on. One, obviously, from the title, you know, we'll hit on a little Ben Simmons. We really peppered the Simmons trade possibilities like up and down in the pot over the summer. So, you want real specific trade stuff, go back and listen to those. If Simmons were to come, I want to focus on what, on today's show, what it would look like defensively if Simmons were in the fold. So so that's where we're going to be going, which is really just a way of talking about the Wolves' defense as a whole. And secondly, related to that, um, that's going to kind of lead into a couple of questions I asked Tim Rolf's new defensive coordinator, Elston Turner, about his vision for the Wolves' defense when he spoke to the media on Monday. So I'll drop in those clips from Turner. He's pretty open about the way he thinks about defensive schemes. So if you care about the Timberwolves defense, which I think you should, if you have hopes of this squad being a playoff team, then I think you'll find it interesting what Turner had to say about, uh, yeah, about what the defense is going to look like. And then lastly, we'll talk a little bit about the re-signings of Jared Vanderbilt, Jordan McLaughlin. Those contracts were reported Friday night, and I think the price tags came in at uh, team-friendly rates. You know, quite frankly, a lot cheaper than I thought they would. So we'll talk about what that where that kind of puts the Wolves financially, how that relates to Ben Simmons, hint it doesn't. And yeah, we'll get into what those signings might indicate in terms of how this team shakes out more rotationally. I think that was more indicative by the signings. So we'll start with Ben Simmons. And again, we talked a lot about potential Simmons trades this summer. My stance remains that the package, if it were to happen, would be far more, you know, would be far more than what I see getting tossed around online, maybe by Timberwolves fans, I think it's both true that Daryl Morey is not going to get what he's asking for, um, but that the price will also maybe be more than what I'm seeing. Uh, you know, I, I get emails and stuff where people are being like, hey, would this work? Here's this trade for Ben Simmons with none of the Wolves' best players. Like, that's not going to happen. I, I think... I, I think the, the trade conversation starts with the conversation of multiple lightly protected or perhaps unprotected first-round picks from the Wolves. Also likely the inclusion of Jaden McDaniels and then the inclusion of two of these four players, Malik Beasley, Torian Prince, Patrick Beverly, D'Angelo Russell. 
Here I, now, here we go. We're, we're talking about the, the trade. <laughs> pairing, pairing two of Beasley, Prince, and Beverly allows for clean salary matching. Um, and then, as, as we talked about, having, having Russell in there, um, which I don't think Rosas wants to do, having Russell in there with one of those guys, that makes it so Philadelphia would you know, need to reroute money. It guarantees the inclusion of a third team. It gets more complicated. But even in the clean salary matching option, I mean, there still probably has to be a third team. Just because Philly's going to want to bring back a player who is individually at a higher level than Beasley, Prince, or Beverly are, right? So that's not what we're talking about today, though. We we're talking about the defense. Like I said, we in the media had the chance to talk to new Wolves D coordinator, Elston Turner, on Monday. And, and it just got me thinking about the defense. Um, and so here we are in September. And it's like, oh, Ben Simmons, Ben Simmons. Talk to the, the coach. I'm interested about the defense. So I, I just started thinking about and taking some notes on what I think you know, what this team would look like if Ben Simmons, you know, was part of it defensively. And it doesn't really matter what the Wolves would run schematically. If Ben Simmons was on it, he could fit great into any defensive scheme. He's just that good defensively. I mean, given Simmons's tools, you can play him in a variety of different defensive roles and, you know, you're going to find success. And it really, he'd be, he'd be the best defender Carl Anthony Towns has ever played with. I think maybe by a wide margin. Obviously, you know, shout out KG, but was KG like 39 when he played with Cat, one knee? <laughs> I mean, other than that, right, the, the, the other best defensive player Cat's played with is Jimmy Butler. And and I think Jimmy is probably, or at least for me, when I was thinking about this, like Jimmy's the best facsimile for Simmons as a defender if we're trying to kind of picture how this would look like on the floor. You know, we think about the, the typical kind of construct of any Wolves defense over the years, and, you know, you kind of have Cat drop back at the rim. You have someone at the point of attack guarding the ball, and then you have the, the other two wings that we kind of – we say they're kind of in the tag position, at least in pick-and-roll coverage. Um, like we saw with Jimmy, you, you can put Simmons at the point of attack or you can put him on the wing in that tag spot. Jimmy's very good at both of those things. You know, he can shut down the ball. He's really active hands, and he's smart on the wing. The difference I see with Simmons compared to Jimmy in that role is, is just mostly related to his size. I mean, Simmons doesn't give up anything athletically, but he's even better at guarding the ball at the point of attack because he's just way taller, way longer, and more athletic than Butler is. And and that size is valuable when Simmons is off ball as well, right? Like, when Simmons is in that tag role, he can use his size to kind of like... Simmons, oddly, he, he kind of defends like very upright, which which he doesn't really get burned for because he's very quick. But it, it, when he swarms the ball, he, he is just so long. And, and I think when he's coming in there in those spots, this limits the ball handler's ability to drive. And it limits the ball handler's ability to kick the ball out to three-point shooter. When you have Simmons coming in there, kind of converging on the play, it's, 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 it's hard to score against him. And the other area Simmons' size is valuable, valuable is you can put him in the power forward spot defensively, right? Like if the opposing power forward is in the corner, right? Spotted up for a corner three, you know, Simmons has the length and speed to really be a help defender all the way into the lane while also having the ability to get back out to the corner and recover to that. And if the power forward is in the dunker spot, you know, more of a maybe bigger player, more athletic player, that's not going to be a mismatch for Simmons either, right? Physically, that's, that's very different than when Robert Covington was in that role next to Cat or Jaden McDaniels when, when he played in that role next to Cat. Not that those guys are bad defenders, but, 
you know, Simmons, Simmons weighs like 40 or 50 more pounds than Covington and McDaniels do. I, I think like in this role, the, the thing to envision is Giannis. You know, Giannis is elite in that power forward role defensively. The Bucks use, right, they use Brooke Lopez as the drop big at the rim, like the Wolves use Cat. And then Giannis is kind of in that free safety role. He kind of ranges from the dunker spot to the corner. Now Giannis is, is he's better at it than Simmons is. But Simmons can play that role, and that's my point. Jimmy Butler can't play that role. So if you're thinking about how the Wolves were bad defensively the Butler year, like, oh, if the Wolves trade for Ben Simmons, are they even going to be better defensively? Like, my answer is yes. I know when Jimmy Butler was here, they ranked 27th, but I think it would be wrong to say that Simmons can't do more things than Butler can defensively. He's certainly more versatile, and he's versatile all the way up to being able to guard fours maybe even fives and I'd, I would argue that he's he's better on ball and as a help defender than Butler is I mean he's Butler's a hell of a defender but I mean Simmons up and down is he's kind of as good as it gets defensively outside of the center position now Butler's obviously a better offensive player than Simmons is that's why I think if we're you know, if we're doing our ESPN top 100 list of like best players in the league, that's why Jimmy Butler is going to be ahead of him there. But if we're talking about defensive impact, you know, it would be almost impossible for me to see the Wolves you know, being a below average defensive team if Simmons was in the mix. I just I don't see that 27th happening again. And, and even anywhere in the middle there. And that's why when I, I think about whether or not it's you know like quote unquote worth it to pay up a hefty price for Simmons on a trade, this is this this is what I go back to is that defensive impact, specifically within the construct of the Wolves roster. Right? I mean, obviously the counterpoint is that Simmons isn't going to have that same impact on the offensive side of the ball. I, and I hear that. That's true. I just go back to like, what do the Wolves need more? Even trading a Malik Beasley and or a D'Angelo Russell in the trade, it's not like the Wolves become a bad offensive team by losing them. I mean, remember, the Wolves, a fa- I mean, the Wolves are a walking top 10 offense any season Cat is healthy. And Ben Simmons is not going to hurt that. The Wolves don't walk into like a Draymond Green problem like the Warriors do of having two non-shooters if they acquire Simmons. Like, yeah, I mean, maybe it'll be prom- problematic to like play Simmons next to Josh Okoge, but is Okoge like in the rotation? I mean, Jared Vanderbilt, Maybe, but Vanderbilt's not going to be starting if they trade for Simmons. You just don't... The Wolves have plenty of shooting to put around Ben Simmons if they trade for him, even if they do trade a couple of shooters in the process of acquiring him. And I, I know we're talking about defense here, but I think that highlights how the defensive value of Simmons would provide almost all profit. And and again, it's not like Simmons is some zero on offense either. So, yes, I, I mean, I'm about it. I I, I think... Simmons would have a profound impact on this team. I also understand that price matters. It's not just a no-brainer to add Simmons at the cost of McDaniels and Beasley and numerous valuable picks. Like, it's not. You you obviously don't do any of Maury's crazy demands, but there there's certainly a logic based on what I believe the impact of Simmons would be on the defense, you know, to pay up and consider that McDaniels, Beasley other filler plus numerous unprotected picks. I mean, I think if you believe in the defensive impact, like you, I think you believe that that's a fair price tag with or without Simmons, though, a huge question entering the Timberwolves season is, you know, how 
tactically they're going to deploy their defense, right? Like we operate this one bubble of the like, oh, Simmons happens, like that's its own thing. But back here in more likely reality, you know, it's a it's a huge question of like, how are the Wolves going to guard this year? We we know last year, once Finch took over, and he, he's even said it, like he was basically just a lot of guess and check defensively. You know, for that reason, I don't really, I don't think the defensive film is all that instructive. I don't think the defensive numbers are all that instructive, even the good ones. Like they entered this offseason needing to hire a new defensive coordinator. And that coach needed to work with Finch to put together a defensive plan. It seemed like they were on their way there with Joseph Blair. That was step one, obviously. Then they race, go back. And now back at step one, they hire Elston Turner from Houston to run the defense. And on Monday afternoon, we got the chance to ask Turner a couple questions. And I think for me, it's starting to begin to clarify um, what this defense is going to look like. Again, like I said, Turner was really open. So we'll get to those questions with Turner here after a quick break. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, we're back talking about what the Timberwolves defense might look like this season. Yes. Defense isn't exactly a sexy topic, but those of you who have followed this team at all over the past few years know that this side of the ball is, is the biggest missing puzzle piece. It's, it's why the Timberwolves are almost always bad. The Wolves have only been a top 10 defense one time in the past 25 years, which is a random stat that isn't relevant to this roster, but a stat that is relevant to this roster is the fact that they've been a bottom 10 defense every year of Cat's career. And so with that, you know, we're not only trying to find the missing puzzle piece, we're trying to figure out like what shape even is the piece, right? For all six years of Cat's career, and you know, we've been we've been over this plenty, but from Sam Mitchell to Tom Thibodeau to Ryan Saunders, like the Wolves have used Cat not only exclusively as a center, but as a drop coverage five whose main job is defending the rim. And along those lines, all three of those coaches have ran pretty similar defensive schemes. We use 
probably too much. We, we use drop coverage as a very broad way of describing how those coaches have used cat. You know, drop is specific to, that's a specific pick and roll coverage. But the way you defend pick and rolls is typically indicative of how aggressive of a defensive team you are. And to that end, the Wolves have ran very conservative defensive scheme. They've been a conservative defensive team since cat has been here. You know, drop coverage is like, it's like run. It's like a running formation in football where you have like a tight end, maybe two tight ends and a fullback out there rather than having like three or four wide receivers, right? Like that scheme can work in football. Your running back just better be able to run the ball, right? And as always, you know, that's always been relatively unclear with Cat. Like, can he run the ball? He's had extended flashes where he looks like a good rim protector, but those good flashes are often tied to having like, talented defenders around him or at least like the same people some, some continuity but you know back to the football thing cat can run the ball he, he just kind of needs like right he needs like an offensive line he's not getting you 100 yards no matter what so i think for me that was the big question this summer you know how were they going to deploy cat defensively next season part of that question could have been answered by signing or trading for a true rim defender to play next to cat right that didn't happen the whole miles turner idea so the question then becomes you know how are they going to deploy Cat specifically as the rim protector? And I, I thought we received a pretty big hint in early August that this season might signal a pretty big change in that vein. Joseph Blair, Joseph Blair, who is no longer with the team, he was initially named the defensive coordinator, and he gave me this answer in early August that I thought was very indicative that the Wolves' very conservative drop scheme might be up for a change. Defensively, in, in your experience, when drop coverage is working in the NBA, why is it working? Because <laughs> you have a massive individual in that drop coverage. It's hard to pass around to get past. That's what I've noticed. Uh, you know, I can tell you that from my time with the Sixers, we ran drop a lot with Joel Embiid. But when we were in that same drop coverage with Al Horford, it wasn't nearly as effective. So it wasn't that the coverage changed. It's the person in the coverage. So I, I believe that you have to kind of defend to your personnel. And if you have a big, massive individual that can that has really good hands, drop coverage is pretty good. Again, that's the guy who was going to be the defensive coordinator. And what he's describing there is not liking the defensive philosophy that, you know, the Wolves ran under Ryan Saunders and David Vanderpool, you know, if you, unless you have a Joel Embiid-sized player. And Cat is far closer in size to Al Horford than he is to Joel Embiid. I mean, that's just a fact. I know Cat's listed at seven feet tall. Cat's not seven feet tall. And he's certainly nowhere near as tall, long, and thick as Joel Embiid is. You know, you factor in that cat on Instagram certainly appears to have thinned down a lot this summer. And, I, you know, I think it's just, it's, it's at least clear that cat is not a massive individual by NBA standards. So it seemed like along those lines, we were destined for a schematic shift, right? That's, that's what it sounded like with Blair. But then Blair leaves for the Wizards like three days after giving that quote. So the question becomes, well, all right, like... What will the next defensive coordinator think? Will, will that defensive coordinator be more Blair or will he be more Vanterpool? And I'll let you be the judge of what Elston Turner said on this topic, but my read on Turner's commentary on Monday was that he feels that his feel of the personnel will determine exactly what he does, but that the plan is to keep Cat back at the rim. It is to run drop. You know, perhaps a scheme that's a little less conservative, you know, you call it like one tight end, but, but still drop coverage. Here's what Turner had to say when I asked him about his ideas on the scheme for next season. Which uh, you mentioned with uh, 
with needing to kind of come and see the group first, but before determining, you know, what you're going to run schematically and such with this group, it seemed like when you were in Houston, that um, the, the coverages seemed very tied to the roster. Once Capella left, obviously you guys started playing a lot smarter, smaller, and that, um, that, that led to a defensive change. Do you have an idea in that same sort of way of what this roster looks like and what just by looking at the roster, what the, the defensive scheme might look like? Well, I mean, I, I do, but not um, definite, not definite, you know, on, on paper and on the outside looking in, obviously you want to keep a guy as big as cat around the basket to improve rebounding, to get in the way and, 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 and be an interferer of shots at the basket. You don't have to block it, just interfere it, make you shoot it over, you know, so, so keeping him as, as close around the basket as you can. Now, with today's game, a lot of guys, uh, a lot of centers are three-point shooters, and, you know, you, you have to uh, go along with that. But as a general system, uh, my thoughts are to try to keep them around the basket, but we did a, a lot of switching in, in – uh, uh, Houston and and those type of coverages have there's a lot of benefits in doing that and there's also some, some not so good benefits in doing it so uh, you know the main thing is is we want to try to keep our bodies in front of the ball contain the dribble fill in and help each other where, where it's needed uh, but in terms of where we're going to switch, how we're going to switch, if we're going to switch, uh, those are yet to be determined. But now I've been in, I've been around long enough to uh, have taught every coverage, every coverage, you know, jumping, trapping pick and rolls to going under pick and rolls to switching them last year. And, and you know, you mentioned the small ball. We were trying to... Uh, be active defensively, create turnovers, run out, and get early baskets. That was our goal. So we went to small ball. But uh, that I think that has a place at certain times during the game, in special situations, not the whole uh, game where teams know that you're a small ball team. You know, put it in there three, four minutes if you, if you put it in there at all. But – uh, my opinion that that you know that with, with big guys like Cat and, and and the rest of the roster, you know, we have to uh, put them in a, use what they what their gift is, and that's size. So I think my main takeaways from that are obviously the part about trying to keep Cat around the basket as much as they can, right? Like again, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It depends on you know how conservative it is around Cat, how they surround Cat, all those things. But I do think we produce pretty clearly know that Turner won't be leaning into like a chaotic scheme that is heavy on switching, right? Because like you said, there's downsides to switching, which is true. The frequency of how often, you know, they switch, like you said, is to be determined. But the last part of Turner's answer is what stood out to me. And it's what most deviates from what Blair's view was on the team. And that's that it appears Turner views the Wolves' size as a weapon, or at least not as a problem. And... For me, I'll be curious to see if Turner changes his opinion on that. You know, my theory, just going off of what I've witnessed through the past few coaches that have been here, is that initially Cat is viewed 
as a lot bigger of a player than he is, or that he might play bigger than he actually does. And, and that most coaches kind of use him in a big way as that being the, you know, the, the smart tactic initially, but then they kind of begin to pivot off that or pivot off their belief in that. You know, regardless of whether or not Cat is more Horford size or Embiid size, he does play smaller. Even, even if he is kind of tall, Cat is not an extremely physical player. I think you come to realize that after watching him up close, you know, game after game. And to that end, that's why I think Blair was wanting to go in a different direction schematically. You know, I, I don't know if everybody knows this, but Blair was on Saunders' staff last year, and he worked with the big guys, and he witnessed Towns night in and night out last year in that big spot. And I think from that experience, Blair deemed that Cat would maybe be best utilized as a big who relies more on finesse than he does on pure size, which isn't even a knock on Cat. Like, there's different ways you can be a center and, and effective. Turner, for now, or at least it sounds, seems to believe a little more in Cat's size than maybe Blair did. So we're kind of back to square one here, if that's true, right? If Turner's going to use Cat as a drop big in a conservative, somewhat conservative scheme, you know, how do they make that work? Which let me to just ask Turner the same question I asked Joseph Blair back in August about, you know, if drop coverage works, when does it work? In the NBA today, just generally not, not maybe Timberwolves specific, when drop coverage is working, why is it working? Well, when you factor in the scouting reports on other teams, it depends on what they are trying to do. Most three-point shooting teams uh, want to do that. They want to shoot threes. And so your coverage is to go over. You stay attached to the ball. You never loosen up, and you make them go over the screen. And when you do that, they head downhill to the drop man. Downhill meaning toward the basket. So you've taken away the three-point shot. That's the first goal succeeded. In order to do that, also, uh, you know, the big man has to be agile because now you have a on-ball defender who's probably behind the basketball and you have a basketball coming right at your center toward the basket. It's a liability there. If your center is the main threat offensively, you're risking foul trouble with a, a good ball handler coming right at him. You know, so there's pros and cons to every coverage and we just have to weigh it out. But downhill coverage takes, uh, when you drop, it takes away the three. And also, uh, you know, it, it, it does keep your big man closer to the basket. From that answer, it seems like Turner believes in situational drop coverage. And from some people I've talked to, I know that Turner was a big fan of playing drop with Clint Capella when they had Capella in Houston. That's because, you know, Capella was a very agile big. Capella could handle the ball handlers going directly downhill at him. Which The interesting line in there, though, right, was about the big difference between Capella and Towns is that, you know, it being a liability to put your center in drop coverage when they're the focal point of your offense on the other side of the floor. Right, because of foul trouble. Capella obviously was not a focal point of the Houston offense. Cat obviously is a focal point of the Wolves offense. And we know Cat has struggled with foul trouble throughout his career, so I think this checks out. You know, if Capella happened to get in foul trouble in Houston, it's like, all right, like on to the next. I mean, Capella didn't even play really full starter minutes when he was there. I mean, but the opposite is true in Minnesota. You know, we've seen it. If Cat gets in foul trouble, like the whole thing crumbles. Certainly the offense crumbles. So the sense I get from all of this is that, yes, the, the Wolves are going to run their coverages similar to how they've always run them with Cat. But I think the difference is that Turner will not be as dogmatic 
with how they do it, which is the opposite of what happened under Saunders and Vantapool, right? It was like, keep pounding the rock, like believe in it, solid is enough. Under those two, the Wolves ran a dogmatically conservative defensive scheme that often put cap by the rim, often through drop coverage. Under Turner and through conversations I've had with Chris Finch, I'd, I'd be very surprised if the Wolves' defensive coverage is not diverse this year. And I think those quotes from Turner are the first kind of indication that they are going to be diverse, but all the way on the spectrum. I mean, I think we will see some switching, but I also think it will go all the way to the other side of the spectrum where it will be conservative at times as well in, in drop coverage. So there you go. I tricked you into defensive coverage talk by putting Ben Simmons' Ben Simmons's name in the title of the show. <laughs> um, let's wrap up uh, today's pod by talking about Jared Vanderbilt and Jordan McLaughlin. They both re-signed with the Wolves this week or last week, however you want to put that. Uh, three-year deals for both of them. Three-year deals that are really two-year deals, if you want them to be. Uh, Vanderbilt's third year is only partially guaranteed, and the third year for McLaughlin is a team option. So really, these are like three-year deals the same way that Wancho's contract last summer was a three-year deal. Like, it's only three years if it works out, right? You can guarantee that third year. And speaking of Wancho, that was kind of my worst-case scenario with the summer nego- these summer's negotiations with Vanderbilt. Like, I heard last summer that the, the Wolves had a walkaway number with Hernan Gomez that was ultimately lower than what he, he signed for. But, you know, last minute, the Wolves did boost their offer up to $7 million a year. And, you know, Wancho's back. And I think there... I think there was reason to be concerned that that might happen this summer with Vanderbilt, you know, last minute boosting Vanderbilt's number up to 7 million a year too, which is, I know what Vanderbilt's initial request was in the negotiation process. Now I don't mean that to compare Vanderbilt to Hernan Gomez's players necessarily. Obviously they're very different. um, And quite frankly, it would be an insult to Vanderbilt and how well he played this season to compare him to what Wancho did last year. But the concern I had with Vanderbilt is more just, about the idea this summer of if they would have signed him to a $7 million a year contract for multiple years. Again, which is similar to what happened with Wancho. Like, it, it looked like he deserved, like Wancho looked like he deserved to get $7 million after getting traded for, but then he looked like a minimum player after his role got diminished. And while like Vanderbilt is for sure valuable in the context of the Wolves' current roster, I mean, he's, he's probably going to be the starting power forward, right? I just, I just wonder if in a year from now, that the Wolves might add another power forward, right? Moving Vanderbilt to a bench role. And then now it's kind of that same role diminishment sort of thing. And at that point, if the Wolves had caved and played Vanderbilt, you know, 7 million a year, that 7 million, you know, feels, I think next summer that would feel like it was in the way of making other moves. Again, just like Wanchos did. But it's not a $7 million a year contract for Vanderbilt, which is why, like, my concerns about that are removed and it's why i view this now as a win it's a it's a 4.3 million dollar deal this year 4.6 next year 4.9 non-guaranteed in the third year and at that price tag like vanderbilt is is probably a bargain for the role he'll play this year and still a fine price for a backup if the team does add a power forward you know a year from now or sometime during the season you know on here with Britt and some other guests we, we talked about how Vanderbilt's, Vanderbilt's price tag would probably be tied to like how good teams ultimately view him defensively, right? We talked about how Vanderbilt graded out as 98th percentile in, as a defender last season according to defensive effective plus minus, which is a pretty good catch-all defensive metric. The question I think for teams 
including the Wolves, assessing how much they would want to pay Vanderbilt was about how much that metric is overvaluing Vanderbilt as a defender. I mean, we know that 98th percentile for Vanderbilt is hyperbolic, right? Vanderbilt is a good defender, but he's not a top 10 defender in the league. That's what that metric implies, right? So I think the question became like, is Vanderbilt closer to 98th percentile defensively or 58th percentile defensively? I think we can all agree it's in that range, right? So for another team to have come out and offered Vanderbilt a contract for that $7 million a year or something like that, that, that would have been them, I think, asserting that they think Vando is more 98th percentile than he is 58th percentile. But that didn't happen. And I would say that this, you know, this $4.3 million number the Wolves ultimately got him for, it's more indicative of that 58th percentile. So I think if you're listening to this, and you would take the over if you're like, dang, you know, 58th, he's way better than that. Like, well, then all I'm saying is I think you got a, I think you got a profit on this deal. You got a good value for the Wolves. And that's all before even considering the need the Wolves roster has at power forward. I'm not saying Vanderbilt is some sort of like savior at power forward, but he's the only one, right? I do this. It would have been really problematic for the growth of, growth of this team if Jane McDaniels and Torian Prince had been the only power forwards on your roster this year. I mean, we know size next to cat is valuable we know this team struggled to rebound and vando provides way more size and way more rebounding than those other guys do so all in all i i am pleasantly surprised by the price tag for vanderbilt and for the team friendly nature of the contract on top of that not to mention this number being only 4.3 you know that allowed the wolves to bring back jordan mclaughlin without going into the luxury tax which brings us to jmac and honestly like surprised me when this one came through i i know there were conversations in the wolves front office after making that patrick beverly trade that you know the only the, the downside they viewed of making the move was that it probably would prevent them from bringing mclaughlin back and that was downside because they knew they had this nice contract offer out there for mclaughlin like three years six million dollars or six and a half million dollars like that's an asset for your team or maybe even in a trade like down the line if mclaughlin proves to produce at a backup point guard level i mean the way i think about it and i tweeted this out the other day is you know i've known about this two million dollar number for mclaughlin for a while so i'd started thinking about it and i'm like all right so you have mclaughlin for two million you got delo for 30 million like if your whole point guard rotation is 32 million that's not too bad at the position i know that's kind of maybe not the perfect way to think about it but like if you don't have any other money committed to the position, I think that $2 million from J-Mac kind of blunts a little of the $30 million that D-Lo's getting. A lot of teams like pay their point guards way more than that. They're backup point guards, right? Like Monte Morris, DeLon Wright, Tyus Jones, TJ McConnell, DJ Augustine. Like that's like the, the normal backup point guard. And those guys make like seven, eight, nine million million a year. And, you know, some teams pay their backups even more than that. Like obviously... Ricky Rubio, 18 million. Goran Dragic, 19 million. Eric Bledsoe, 18 million. Those, those sort of deals are out there for backup point guards too. And are, yeah, I mean, are those players better than Jordan McLaughlin? Yes, but like for the dollar, you know, probably not. To be fair, you know, Patrick Beverly falls into that like Rubio, Dragic, Bledsoe kind of thing. He's set to make 14.3 million dollars this year. Um, to be clear, I'm not like anti-Beverly at all. I think. I think it was a major win to trade Jerk Culver and Juancho Hernan Gomez for, for Patrick Beverly. But now, like, in the context of the, right, the point guard position, the Wolves had $46 million dedicated just to the point guard position this year between D'Lo, Beverly, and McLaughlin, right? Like, 
which again is fine to get Beverly. The opportunity cost was just Culver and Wancho, even if those guys were sunk cost, whatever. Still, $46 million is too much at, at the point guard position, given how pinched the Wolves are, which I guess what I'm saying is that I like the idea of D'Lo and J-Mac being the point guards a year from now once Beverly is off the books. If, if, if Beverly doesn't want to resign, I think you have a manageable number at point guard between just Russell and McLaughlin. And as we learned this summer, like, you, you, you need every dollar. You, the, the way this roster is built up against the tax, like, you want to improve this roster on the margins, like, that's going to make a difference. That said, like, I don't think McLaughlin is some, I don't want to overblow the McLaughlin things. Like, he has, he has to be more consistent. Um, he, he really fell off as a scorer last season, you know, specifically around the rim. I think we all saw that last year. He, he struggled to finish. I saw Wolves clips on Twitter posted that McLaughlin shot 60% within four feet of the hoop his rookie year, and that that number dropped all the way down to 45% last year. It's a big difference. I, look, looking into that a little bit, like, not being able to finish around the rim really hurt McLaughlin as a pick-and-roll player last year, which is kind of his bread and butter, right? Like, of the 150 players to shoot out of pick-and-rolls 85 times last year, McLaughlin's effectiveness per possession ranked 144th. That's really bad. But if you go back a year to his rookie year and you look again at the 150 highest volume pick and roll shooters, McLaughlin ranked 38th. That was the same effectiveness as Donovan Mitchell, Jordan Clarkson. So I think the, the hope, and if you want to play McLaughlin in your rotation and you know not, not hurt your team, I mean, the hope is that he at least has to be somewhere between his effectiveness as a scorer out of pick and roll and around the rim needs to be somewhere at least between those two years. You hope it gets all the way back up to where it was his rookie year. The good news, though, is that McLaughlin last year became an even better passer in those pick-and-roll situations. Those other numbers, I was just saying, those are just pick-and-rolls where he goes goes to the rim and shoots it, right? As a passer, McLaughlin generated 1.08 points per possession as a pick-and-roll passer, which was a sizable jump, actually, from his rookie year, and it's just a good number overall. I think we can all, like, picture that, right? Remember McLaughlin, Nas Reed, and pick and roll? You know, consistently hitting Nas on the roll with that pocket pass. And as a, for that reason, like, Nas had a great year as a pick and roll player. Nas generated 1.16 points per possession. That's really good. That's the same effectiveness as Giannis Antetokounmpo and Jared Allen last year. And Nas, it's not a small sample size either. Nas actually ran more total pick and rolls than both Giannis and Jared Allen, which is just kind of nuts. Um, so, so again, not a small sample size. Crazy stat here while I'm on the Nas train. Only nine players in the entire NBA shot out of pick-and-roll situations more than Nas Reed did last season. Not per game, not per minute, total shots, which is wild considering Nas only played 19 minutes a game last year, and the other of those guys are playing like 30, 35 minutes, right? Point being, Jordan McLaughlin had a lot to do with that. So I'm encouraged that J-Mac is back. I think he's a good backup point guard. And I think, you know, quite, I'm, I'm surprised they got him to only, not only sign for so cheap, but for so, for so long, right? It's guaranteed two years at 2 mil this year, 2.2 mil the next year, and then a team option on the third year for $2.3 million. Like, that's basically a minimum contract, but with team optionality. Like, obviously McLaughlin has some things to prove about his effectiveness and, you know, how good is he even in meaningful games? Like, same thing goes with Vanderbilt. We, we've seen these guys play in, like, the functional equivalent of the garbage time part of the season where the Wolves have been, like, well out of the playoff hunt. That's, that's where these guys have produced. Can they produce when you're in the playoff hunt, when you're 500 in January? Like, 
you know, we get we got to see. But also like Vanderbilt, I think the, the price tag, whatever that risk is, like the price tag is worth that risk for McLaughlin too. I think it was a really good job of patience by the Wolves front office and the, you know, the whole negotiation process, like for sure, props there. And no, like I get this question all the time. No, I don't think signing Jared Vanderbilt and Jordan McLaughlin has any impact on the Wolves' ability to sign Ben Simmons. Like, yes, now they're even closer pushed up against the luxury tax. The Wolves currently sit $600,000 below the tax with 14 players under contract. But they were going up against the tax anyway. Had to fill out those roster spots one way or the other. So if a Ben Simmons trade was going to push them into the luxury tax, that was going to happen with or without re-signing Fando and J-Max. So don't fret there. And one last thing before I let you go, the, the 14 players I include in that where they're 600K below the tax includes Leandro Bormaro signing his four-year $11.8 million rookie contract. You can plan on hearing an official announcement from the team on that on Tuesday or Wednesday and then look for a Bormaro press conference on Wednesday afternoon, I think. So, um, yes, that's all I have for today. We're officially less than two weeks away from training camp. So look for the pod to start slowly ramping up here shortly. Uh, obviously, if the trade does go down, we'll be on that right away. Um, but other than that, we're ready for training camp. I'll Britt on to talk with you all here in the lead up to that. Till then, I'm Dane. Enjoy the rest of your Tim Rolls offseason. Peace out. How I'm feeling, man, I hope it never stop, yeah. Green it hard so you can find me in the crowd, yeah, yeah. Don't let standards ever, ever bring you down, yeah. Hope you're dancing like nobody else around, Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.